Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the calm and the chaos, navigating household emergencies. And we're talking to Eric Wolf, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Um, he's working to understand and respond to floods by partnering with local communities. Hi, thank you for joining me. Hello, Gabriella. Thank you for having me on the show. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you mind introducing yourself in a bit more detail so we get to know you? Yes. So I think there's some interesting things about me. Um, first of all, I'm originally from Brazil. Um, so I came from the other side of the planet and then I did my PhD at Monash University in Melbourne. Uh, but my main case studies were the Asia Pacific region. And then after my PhD, I moved to Singapore and I have been working in climate adaptation, particularly in Southeast Asia right now. Um, I've done work in Fiji, done work in Australia, done work in Indonesia and Thailand and a little bit in Singapore, obviously. But yes, I think my passions are floods, are connecting with people and talking about climate change, talking about preparations, how we can act and how we can adapt. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll leave it for the interview. Yes, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I think there are so many things that we can learn from you and you're so well-traveled. Um, and um, did you like Melbourne? I love Melbourne. And I, well, you never know, an academic life always has a lot of back and forth. You move a lot around, but I find it very likely that I'll go back to Melbourne at some point. Yeah, I love Melbourne. Um, but we'd also like to get to know you in a bit more detail um, with the section we call Have You Met Eric? Um, so we'd like to know, first of all, what is your favorite book? Well, that's the thing. I think in an academic job, we end up reading a lot for work. So I think it's been a little while that I haven't read for fun fully, but I would say that some of the things that I used to read that I loved for fun, particularly at a younger age, were those detective stories. And I think that I was very into Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and, and uh, Agatha Christie is like uh, Miss Marple, I think the, the character. Um, so I think like um, Murder and the Orient Express, for example, would probably would be one of my favorite books, at least that I remember reading and rereading it again. Uh, yeah, I think the, that magic of wanting to know what happens next, mm -hmm. I think, uh, and wanting to solve the mystery, which in some sense, maybe it's a science thing as well, right? That's true. I haven't thought about, you know, who done it as a science thing, but it does make sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, I definitely had a lot of fun reading these things. 
I, I've got to admit, I never really got into, I think I tried reading Ad Agatha Christie once. I found it very hard, but I also think I might have been 11. Hmm. I think you could give it another go. Uh, yeah. It's it's quite approachable. It's not every book, definitely. Mm -hmm. Those um, Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie, they're very prolific. They wrote a lot. So start with the good ones, but okay. they are amazing ones. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, have you had time to watch any movies recently? Uh, probably the answer you're getting a lot now is uh, Barbenheimer, right? Yeah. Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, I'll probably focus on maybe not Oppenheimer, but I think Christopher Nolan movies are some of my favorites. Um, I think that's a bit of a cliche for scientists as well. The well, Inception, Interstellar, and now Oppenheimer, I think they are fantastic movies. Maybe what I'm what I like about them is the fact that it's they're inspired in science or inspired in scientific discussions, but made it very approachable. And yeah, you can make people think about well, Interstellar, for example, is can you think about what would it mean for uh, space and time to be something you could cross again, right? Which we know is Einstein's part of Einstein's theory, but I, I find it really interesting. It's made in the movie and people can relate to it or people can, I think, abstract and explore that idea in a visual way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll inspire someone to, to actually create the technology to um, do it one day. Yes, exactly. I think I think these movies that can connect us to important scientific or philosophical discussions. There's her as well that is coming a lot now in the discussions because of artificial intelligence and how we relate to it and that fear that humans will fall in love with their computers or with the yeah, artificial intelligence in general. I find those things fascinating. I think her is a bit of a slow movie, so mm -hmm. I don't like the pace, but I love the idea. Yeah. And I think that with her, it feels very, it, it feels like it could just be like in the next 10 years that that could happen. Yeah. Whereas maybe Interstellar, maybe a bit more time. Yeah, who knows? It's, it talks about an apocalyptic future, right? That is, people need to travel out of the planet because the planet is wrecked so i think i think it's it's anything if it makes us think about the value of saving our planet i think it's already right yeah mm. yeah and do you listen to any podcasts yes i do uh, maybe the one i would refer to right now i recommend the the audience is they're actually not super active but it's um I really love it. It's called uh, Eons, and it's by PBS um, in the US. Uh, so it's a not-for-profit organization, PBS. And it's basically, they have a YouTube channel and they upload videos, short videos. Oh, always they are related to like paleontology or archaeology, um, but they are based on real research and they're like 10-minute videos usually. And they did a podcast last year. I think the last one was mid last year. Uh, and they, I think the podcast is called Ian's Mysteries of Deep Time. Um, and it's this kind of thing that probably what I like about it is because it's about science and about 
well, they're talking about Neanderthals all the time or about dinosaurs. I definitely was a dinosaur child, but I think it's beyond that. It's, it brings the discussion to today. Why does that matter? Mm-hmm. And like understanding how a planet changed or understanding our behavior. Why are we here? And how did we survive ice ages or how did we cooperate? And what is the first evidence of a human helping another human? Those are all topics that they they cover, and I think I highly recommend it. As again, probably scientific research made accessible and made relevant, um, and made into something that people can engage with. Great. Um, yeah. How do you spell that? Eons. E O N S. Yeah. It's it's a, I think okay. a geological term as well. Ah, uh, like okay. I yeah. was. I think I was thinking of it like the rest of the word science, but just ions. No, no. Eons. It's E-O-N-S. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. I think that'll yeah. make it a lot easier for everyone to find it. Yes. Sorry. Sorry for Oh, maybe just confusion. me. That's okay. <laughs> um, and do you have a role model? Yes. Uh, I think the obvious answer always is a parent. Right? I think my parents... Um, I have no siblings, so definitely very connected with my parents. But besides that, I think I have professional role models as well that are very important for me. I think I'm very lucky that my current mentor, my current boss, I prefer to call her a mentor, is someone I aspire to be academically and professionally. I think... um, I work with assistant professor Perrine Hamel here in Singapore, and I, I've told her many times the reason I came to Singapore to a large extent is because I wanted to work with her. And, um, I think I really admire how generous she is and how, um, I think, cognizant of different backgrounds and open opportunities. I think women in academia have a hard time very often to... Um, I think align academia with maternity and I think we should always be championing that there are more women in academia and yeah even though I'm not a woman I think certainly one I googled her name and I saw that she was championing this it's like it's the kind of mentor I would like to work with Mm. it's really important for me um, seeing how the dynamics in our group work how our PhD students are all empowered to have the voice and how she never would say I'm too busy to discuss your career progression, for example. I think those are all very important things for me and that I, I'm i sure that I will be doing in the future. Um, I, I know I have a lot of, I've had a lot of academic mentors. So I think, yeah, I wanted to definitely, I have to thank all the people who brought me to where I am and all the people I'll continue working in the future. But I think being generous and opening space for the next generation is something that it's definitely differential for me. She sounds like um, an amazing mentor and it sounds like, yeah, you've been very lucky um, to have such a number of great mentors. Yes, yes, definitely have. Um, I think academia, no one is a good academic alone. Mm -hmm. It's a community. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And our last question is, have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Yes. Um, So I think 
the first thing that I can think of is maybe about another teacher who, well, she was my teacher when I was back in Brazil. I was an undergrad student in, I, I have a background in civil engineering, um, civil engineering and architecture. But I remember, I think it was my first or second semester at university, and it was introduction to geology. And the for some reason, I think there was a problem with enrollment, and all my classmates did in the civil engineering classroom, and I didn't get a room in that with that group. So I had to be moved to the geology group. So it's like hardcore geology, right? Introduction to geology in the geology department. Oh. And this professor, we were terrified of her. She was an elderly woman, looked very frail, but we were terrified because she failed a lot of students. She was high expert in the field. I just remember that what I loved about her is that I would talk to my colleagues in the civil engineering group. And their teacher was just a lazy guy. And they the hear like the test questions, everybody knew, oh, it's chapter 10, page 100, the third paragraph, that's the answer to the question. You just know that and you'll figure the test. And for her, I remember getting to the first test, not knowing what would happen. She got a bag of rocks and put it in front of me and say, classify. And it was like, <laughs> I think it was mind blowing. But on the other hand, it was like, knowledge made tangible, right? Mm -hmm. You can apply it. So now I can walk down the street, get a rock and I can classify it. And my friends, they had no clue because they just, it, the other teacher was just asking them to repeat what was in the book. So I think mm -hmm. that that's, well, it definitely influenced my interest in geology, but I don't work with geology right now. I think I work with natural sciences more generally. But it also influenced me in how I like to teach as well. Yeah, how I like to talk about science, I guess. Yeah, I think that, you know, in universities, I certainly experienced this. Um, you know, you, they want to get you in and out, having learned everything, pass all the tests. And it doesn't matter if you actually remember anything that you learned. Um, and I think that that maybe is a bit of a problem. I um, So it's good to hear that you know, you're applying, you know, the fact that, you know, you really actually learn something and that it's really important to actually not just pass a test, but learn the materials. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. The, that, that aspect of making it tangible, having experience with it. Mm. I think that's, that was life changing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so I like to start the podcast by, you know, defining a few things so that, uh, we're, we're starting off on the same foot. Um, so how do you define household management? That's a, a really good question. Um, it is interesting because it brought me memories from a few months ago. I was in this academic workshop and there's this young guy, he's a colleague, an early career researcher, as we call as well. Um, but I think he's a more old old school type of academic and he started a meeting by defining management and I said well that sounds a little bit antiquated but then I heard it and I was like wow that's actually super interesting I'm gonna use it sooner or later so shout out for Z for the the telling me the etymology of management that I'm gonna use now um, mm -hmm. I think I've found it really interesting because uh, management 
it actually comes from old French or old Latin. Uh, and the root of it is the same root of the word hence in most Latin languages. So it comes manus, which is derived um, to get to management. So the the whole original idea of management was it was a word used to talk about taming wild horses. So I find it fascinating how management is in some ways about taming uncertainty and mm-hmm. taming chaos to get to something that we consider productive. Um, so yeah, household management in some ways we could refer back to the original etymology and say, how can we put order to chaos? I don't like the word order, but it's like, how can we tame it and, and make it manageable as we're humans, right? We need to manage things, we need to um, simplify complexity so we can deal with it, I guess. I love that definition. It's it's quite different from like everything I've gotten before, but it definitely, I think, I think most people find their houses quite chaotic and everyone sort of longs for that. Um, order or, you know, knowing where everything is. And so I, I love that definition. Um, and actually, you know, today we're going to be talking about the calm and the chaos. Um, so um, I do want to know what is a disaster and what is a natural disaster? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question. First of all, maybe before I answer your question, if you really, I think it's important that we do a little disclaimer just because we are going to talk about several different topics, I think, and I'm obviously not an expert in everything. So, um, and besides that, I think there are some topics that are, we're talking about life-threatening situations. So obviously it's important that we do a disclaimer that this is an informal discussion. It's meant to be informative, but people should not take this as an expert advice and they should not make life-changing decisions based on this podcast. The obvious uh, recommendation is always follow the instruction for your local authorities. If you feel there's a situation that could be threatening your life, you should look for professional um, accredited advice wherever you are, right? Having said that, I think we can go to uh, our discussion. Um, Disaster is a really interesting word. In academia, there's a lot of debates about disasters. Um, But I think some of the best authors, in my opinion, try to make it as simple as possible, this definition. And what you would say is a disaster is when you have a situation that is so bad that you require external help to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it is as generic as that. Um, Obviously, we could unpack a lot of these terms, what is to deal with it, what is external help, and what is the situation, right? So, I mean, we could do a whole course on this, but to make it shorter, usually what we're talking about uh, is what people traditionally or historically have called a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. And when we were preparing for the podcast, I told you that um, I had problems with that terminology. It's, I think, uh, and I think it's not obvious, right? What did you mm. think when he told you that that I had a problem with it? Well, so I was like, 
I was like, oh, we've always called, well, as far as I'm aware, we've always called them natural disasters because, you know, it happens in nature and it's a disaster. So I was like, okay. Um, And I did want to ask this question because I think that a lot of people have the same misconception as I did. Um, And I'd love for everyone to learn as well why we shouldn't be calling them natural disasters. Yeah. So I, I think that's exactly the point. Yeah. I think the idea is... Obviously, we recognize that the origin of many of these things, we're talking about like earthquakes or tsunamis or floods or storms, we recognize there is an environmental component, right? We prefer environmental than natural, for example. But um, the thing is, the danger of calling natural disasters is when a decision maker, for example, governments or someone with power says, oh, sorry, this earthquake killed a lot of people it was it was a natural disaster because it's it removes the the responsibility i think it blames nature it's very easy to blame nature and say that oh we couldn't have predicted it or we couldn't have done anything and the what the community actually says and there's a very interesting and and big movement around this in the disaster scientists community if you look for it, the the it's hashtag no natural disasters. Um, and what they say is, sure, there could be an environmental origin, but we can do something about everything, mm-hmm. right? Even if we're talking about earthquakes, we can build better buildings. If we're talking about floods, we could not be settling in a flood plain, right? And that's obviously, it shouldn't be misinterpreted as, I'm blaming the people who got caught in the flood. That's not it. We should be making accountable the authorities, for example, that allowed people to purchase land on the floodplain, right? Mm -hmm. Or the ones who didn't set up an early warning system or who didn't educate people. Um, So yeah, I think we can unpack more in the other questions, but that's the main reason why we avoid it is so that we held people responsible and yeah i think that's that's the main reason we we don't want to be rude to people and say stop using that totally but it's like particularly the pushes asking journalists to stop mm-hmm. mainstreaming that term and saying no it's it's a disaster which has a very big human component human decisions made a difference in how it played out So we need to make humans accountable or at least aware that they should better prepare for next time. And I, yeah, it does. I was, I was thinking maybe this is because, you know, I've, I've grown up, um, since then, but I feel like, you know, 10 years ago, natural disaster, oh, what could you have done? There wasn't anything we could have done to prevent this. I feel like now there's a lot more, you know, well, we should have done this. We should have done that to prepare for it. You know, why, um, I think it's also because we have a lot more disasters nowadays because of reasons I think we'll get into. Um, like, you know, instead of saying, oh, it's so surprising that this place is flooded. Um, instead of saying, well, this happened last year and this is going to happen next year. Um, maybe we should start doing something to um, move people away from this area <laughs> or something to stop the flooding. Um, something bigger. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And and I think um, 
what I would say is definitely the terminology aspect. And we grew up hearing people talking natural disasters, right? So it's hard to get out of it. And I might even slip sometimes and say it, but I didn't immediately like, no, we cannot say natural disasters. I work in this field and we need to make sure that people know that something can be done. I think maybe another way of illustrating this um, is thinking about, um, there's this professor that I really like in the UK. His name is Elon Kelman. He's a professor at the University College London. And he has a, an amazing book called Disasters by Choice. Well, by the name of the book, you know that that's a, one of the big points, right? Um, but I love that always when he does his lectures, he uses this example. Uh, I think it's a tricky question. It's like, and I can try it on you. How many people's how how um, how many people died as a consequence of an earthquake? It's like, and then he asked people to estimate it. What, what do you think? Like in the last year, how many people died due to an earthquake? Hmm, I can't really think of, I mean, maybe I'm just not paying attention to the news, just, but I'm trying to think of magnitude. how many earthquakes. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like 200 people? Yeah, well, the, the tricky question is that the answer is zero. No uh -huh. one dies from an earthquake. People mm -hmm. die from collapsing buildings. An earthquake happens, the shakes. Mm -hmm. it, so that's the distinction that maybe we'll get next. It's An earthquake is a hazard. It's uh -huh. a situation that has a potential to cause damage. Mm -hmm. But it only causes damage due to human action or inaction. Mm -hmm. So if we actually had everybody lived... If there's an earthquake in the middle of the sea, no one is affected. The earthquake needs to happen in a city, and particularly in a city with poorly built buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's when casualties happen. So, and I think this was even illustrated in, I think this year, right? It was in February, there was the big earthquake in Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, I saw it went a bit viral, in, at least in the disaster studies community. It went a bit viral that they had a photo of the city completely destroyed with one building standing and it was the engineers association <laughs> because obviously the engineers built it really well and and they found out that a lot of the responsibility for the immense number of deaths in this earthquake particularly was poor regulations the government had simplified building codes to encourage development and then developers or developers are, are not charity, right? They want to maximize their profit. So mm -hmm. they made cheap buildings to sell more and to produce more. And then the buildings could not stand an earthquake. So, yeah. So whose responsibility is, I get, is it to make sure that, you know, for each area, um, everyone knows what the main hazards are and develops ways to, you know, um, make sure that, you know, it doesn't affect people or it doesn't, you know, kill people. Yeah. So I think my answer is everybody should be responsible. Mm -hmm. It should be a shared responsibility um, in the sense that it's something of common interest, right? It's in the society's interest to avoid disasters. 
so everybody should be aware. Obviously, the whole idea of a government, a government is, if you look at the origin of the word and of the concept, the idea is that people alone cannot build a bridge to cross a river. You need to collaborate with others. So the origin of government is the idea that people can make shared decisions of common interests and they can mobilize resources and they can organize themselves. And so uh, the government is the ultimate body that represents the will of the people and the shared responsibilities and the shared interests. So yes, it's very easy to say that the government should be doing more. Always the authorities are responsible for the well-being and the physical and mental integrity of the citizens. But I think we, are, we can talk about how even an individual has a responsibility of being aware of your surroundings and your home and where you live and what could affect you. So I yeah. think we can unpack that more. Great. Yes. Um, so I guess, obviously, if you have a government that's coming up saying, we will do everything to uh, make sure that you know, your buildings are safe and we'll protect you from floods and everything, or we're going to vote more um, uh, environmentally friendly policies, then that's something that we should do. But, you know, as far as right now, what can we do to protect our homes? Um, we need to look at that as well. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, first of all, how do we know what we should be looking for when we're, you know, moving into an area or already living in an area, how do we know what we should be prepared for? Yeah, there is no straightforward answer. I would love to refer to, and uh, maybe there is, and just not aware of a, a checklist, check for all these hazards where you live, maybe it exists. But I think one of the challenges of contemporary life, right, is that we're so busy and we have so many concerns. and. Well, we need to work and we need to think about career progression and uh, yeah, family and there are responsibilities. So I think the very important and the basic answer I have for this is be aware of your surroundings. And I think humanity, we used to be very cognizant of the environment around us, right? And if you look at indigenous communities, um, they are historically and much more connected to nature and there is a knowledge about nature that is shared from generation to generation so indigenous people are very good and particularly in australia with the longest living culture there are there are stories there is a, a legacy of knowledge being passed from generation to generation about what happened in the past and about what this place what could happen in this place where we live, right? So I think this is something that unfortunately we lose a lot. And well, I can definitely talk about that as being as a migrant who lived for a while in Australia, and now I'm living for a while in Singapore. Every time I move, it's obviously a new culture and a new city to navigate, but we also don't know the things around us. And I think looking for this knowledge is super important. Maybe just when you're moving in, talk to your elderly neighbors who have been there. Was ever there a flood before and how bad was it? And 
I don't know, like you could definitely just being aware and, and being more grounded. I think it's a very good suggestion, but maybe that is a bit almost, I'm going almost in a spiritual way. Obviously you could look for what our authorities recommend. The official guidance in Australia, what I can say, where I imagine most of the audience could be, is you look for your local councils. Local councils have maps of hazards. They know how likely it is to flood, how likely it is for a landslide to happen or for a fire to happen. So I think, yeah, particularly a, a large portion of the risk management in a household should be done when you're purchasing a property, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, once you've decided or once you've discovered, you know, this house is um, more at risk of floods or, you know, maybe we get really strong storms one time of year. Um, once you know what's going to happen, what kinds of things can you do to prepare for them or even to reduce the risk? Yes. Um, so, yeah, maybe what we're getting to is risk management. Mm -hmm. That's a good opportunity to just say what risk management is and how we could do it, right? Um, so I think risk risk management, the whole idea is you need to, first of all, identify these hazards as we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then risk as an academic concept, I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible, I promise, is a combination of how likely it is that something will happen. So a probability, a chance of something happening. And then how bad are the consequences? Mm -hmm. So these are the two components that interact. Academics love complicating this, obviously. So there's like, you could talk about exposure, you could talk about vulnerability, but they are kind of within these two realms. So I think always what you should be aware is what are the chances of it happening? And then how bad would it be if it happens? And then risk management is reducing these two or one of them, whichever you can. Usually whichever is cheaper and easier to reduce. Uh, so what you can do is maybe one way is thinking about the scenarios. So if you have a house that you know is likely to flood, can you think about the scenarios? What is a 30 centimeters high flood? And what is a one meter high flood? And what is a three meter high flood? So these are scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. And you can play with that. And ideally you would be able even to look with your local authorities, how likely it is that each of these scenarios happen. Mm -hmm. And maybe the 30 centimeter one happens every rainy season a couple of times, maybe the one meter one happened once in the history of the site, in the known history of the site. And maybe the three meter one never happened. You know, it's always good to have that scenario in mind, right? So once you have the scenarios, then it's time to think about how do you reduce the chances and how do you reduce the consequences, right? Maybe I can ask back to you, what do you think we could do to reduce the chances 
for example. Hmm. For a flood, you could build higher. Um, you could build on a hill. You could build um, on stilts. Um, build a barrier to stop the water from getting in. Yes. Yes, and uh, it's really interesting because all your answers are going to very physical things, right? Yeah. Which makes sense because a flood is a physical thing, right? It's a water coming in, so get out of the water. That's uh -huh. a, a very obvious answer, a great answer. Um, what I would say is very often the reducing the consequences, then it gets a bit more nuanced and it's usually less physical. Because how can you reduce the impact of a flood? First of all, know the number of the emergency services, <laughs> right? So have it very easily accessible so that you can ask for help. Mm -hmm. Another possible strategy is, well, thinking about the consequences of getting your house flooded. I can talk about maybe my experience with working in Indonesia in very flood-prone communities. What people, well, it's it's unfortunate. It's, we should not glamorize it because obviously it's very often people are in need and they settle in flood-prone areas because land is more affordable, obviously, right? No one wants to live there, so it's cheaper. Um, and then what happens is that people got used to regular flooding. And what they do is they found very ingenious ways of reducing the damage caused. One of them is, for example, you're buying a couch. Don't buy a couch made of fabric. Maybe buy a plastic seat. Plastic seats can be wet and then they dry and then done, right? Mm -hmm. So you've reduced cost of damaged furniture. Uh, if you look for it's it's actually not very different what people do and what you look in what Venice does. Venice has historically dealt with floods. Very often people have two-story houses, not because they're fancy or because they're nicer, but it's a it's a risk management strategy. If you have a second floor, you can keep less valuable things on the ground floor. You can keep activities on the ground floor. You can host your friends, but your valuables, your TV, your computer, and you keep on the second floor. And you, you, that's kind of a strategy of allowing it to flood. And yeah, it's, it is interesting discussing these things because it's also very cultural, right? If you talk about people in Australia living with floods, I know that in Queensland, there's a history of um, houses on stilts. If you talk in Melbourne about people in central Melbourne living with floods, people are not into it, right? And there will be a big resistance. So, but yeah, I think we should be aware of these things and they are valid strategies. So maybe with a, a future that is uncertain, we could be considering more of those things and not just building more walls and more walls. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I guess, yeah, I'm just like, stop the water, you know, don't let the water come in. Um, and you're like, water is what's going to happen. Just, I guess, have strategies to um, deal with the water um, as it comes in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's obviously not easy to swallow that bill, right? Mm -hmm. If you're living in a city center and you don't want to hear about your house getting flooded. 
but maybe at least not taking to the extreme that everybody should have it. But if you know your area is very flood prone, maybe adopt it partially at least. Maybe at least if you're going to buy something very valuable, buy something that is not heavy, yeah. that you can move with you when the flood is coming, right? <laughs> Don't buy the most expensive couch that is super heavy and you cannot move it alone. Right, or if you do put it on the second floor, so yeah. I think those are those are basic things that maybe people don't want to hear it, but after the flood comes, that makes a difference. And it's 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 not so hard, I think, to like you know think I'm just gonna put my nice sofa on the top floor and I'll keep my slightly older uh, sofa on the bottom floor. Ooh, yeah, that, yeah, and that's risk management, yeah. Mm. It's better to do it before than to, oh, I could have thought about that, right? Yeah. Later, <laughs> once the damage is caused. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how does resilience um, play a role in preparing and responding to these emergencies? Resilience is a very interesting concept as well. Uh, it's quite controversial. There was a big mm -hmm. history. I'm not going to go into all of it, but it, it has a mix of it is a big concept in psychology. It is a big concept in ecology and in physics. So it's like, you can talk about resilience of a material, like a resilience of a road to car traffic. Wow, you can talk about mental resilience in the workplace. And so it's, it's very, it goes everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, what usually we think about resilience, I think most people, if you ask around, like people who don't study this, people very often think it is about resisting as well um, and, and being strong, right? Um, I think that's what people would think. Um, I think it's more productive to think about resilience and, and it's a bit in the academic way of treating this concept is, is about how well can you recover mm -hmm. after the damage is caused. Um, so the idea is well some of these things that we were talking are about resilience already right if you can um reduce the damage right that's resilience one of the strategies the resilience strategies there's a whole literature books and books on this but you could think about resilience to a flood it could be about building a fortress building walls as you said but it could be about just dealing with it and like allowing water to come in and not have valuables on the ground floor. Or it could be about, I think it less, less applicable to houses, but you can think that there are um, many um, indigenous strategies of dealing with fire and with floods that are about just let it go, produce something cheap and simple and easy. When the flood comes, it's okay. You expected it would happen at some time. You just rebuild it. So I think those are strategies of if it is easy to rebuild, it's resilient. If it is sturdy and not affected, it's also resilient. But also there is the in-between of anything that is, uh, yeah, anything that would allow you to reduce damage and recover more quickly. So again, in the sense that if you can recover quickly and easily, then resilience is the antidote of disasters, right? As disasters 
when you need external help because you cannot deal with it alone. Resilience is the opposite of it, is making sure you can deal with it alone or making sure that you have the strategies. So yeah, I think so many things can be resilience, but going back to, for example, communities who coexist with floods, you can think about stocking food as a resilient strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And even having savings for a need, and that's very applicable in household management anywhere, right? Have those savings that they are there in case there is, you lose your job, in case there's a massive pandemic that a lot of people lose their jobs. And, <laughs> and yeah, it's, I think resilience can have all these strategies. Uh, I still don't understand why in Australia, particularly when the pandemic arrived, people ran to buy toilet paper. I think that was a, a, a curious priority. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it, it talks about, oh, yeah, what people in their worst nightmares is running out of toilet paper for some reason. Uh, but I think in Indonesia, in those flood-prone communities, a lot of it was storing food that is not, um, not perishable food, right? Because the main hazard, actually, as I said, the houses are very prepared already. People have lived with it for years. So their main threat is actually being disconnected from the city. The roads flood and you cannot move around. So well, how you reduce the damage is by having everything you need at home. Yeah, I think I, think I, I went into a tangent, but I think those are many examples of resilience there. Yeah. No, thank you. I think that's really good to remember that it's not just about, um, you know, maybe preparing your home um, to either protect yourself from disasters or hazards or, um, you know, prepare the house in such a way that you're not as affected, but also making sure that you are able to recover and to survive the, the hazard itself. Um, yeah, but what about, um, you know, after the, after the, the hazard, you know, um, so your house has um, been flooded and, um, you know, Everything survived, you've got enough food, but how do you recover from that afterwards? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think that again, probably goes at the individual level, but it, it also is a community level effort, right? And, and again, we're talking about resilience indirectly there because we're talking about how quickly or easily you can return to a functional state and to not normalcy because things evolve as we've seen with COVID, right? It's a new normal, but um, it's returning to a functional state is a challenge and it should be something that we are all aware and authorities are aware as well. Um, I think in the case of Australia, for example, if we talk about the, um, the big uh, fire season, right? The, the black summer in Australia, 2019 to 2020, I was in Australia at the time, and unfortunately, a lot of people were affected. A lot of people lost their homes. And I think that the recovery was very hard. There was some pushback at the time, even, um, of people getting into the news and saying, hey, our house is burnt. What do we do now? No one is coming to help us. Um, so I think a lot of it 
is about having a contingency plan beforehand. And as we were saying, for example, in a case of a fire of a flood, you should immediately know the um, the the number of emergency services and those things that are useful during, but afterwards it is a community effort, really. So it's it's about yeah, you should probably have your savings for the emergency. That certainly improves your recovery, but very often is about. If it is a disaster, you need your community, you need your government. So the people should be advocating or asking for the government to have these plans for recovery, for people to be supported and, and to have, um, particularly if we're seeing an increasing amount of things happening, there should be a community-wide strategy. There could be, in the same way that we have like community watch, we could have community recovery. And we see this in in Southeast Asia, in, in other countries, in Fiji, I saw that was very strong, the community component of it. Um, people move into someone else's home until they can recover and they can their home can um, again be um, be in a, a livable condition, right? It's, you cannot do... Um, many of the rebuilding works cannot be done while you're living in the place. So unfortunately in the afterwards, it comes a lot to social capital, community bonds, governmental support, um, and having a contingency plan, right? Having thought about those things beforehand. I'm not advocating for everyone to become those extreme, what they call the doomsday preppers, right? <laughs> the, the survivalists that we see, those people who build bunkers mm-hmm. and who store a lot of stuff. I think that is a very extreme and sure, it, it comes to an individual choice of your, what is your tolerance to risk. If you have a very, very low tolerance, if you think there is a nuclear warfare coming your way yeah then maybe it's probably a very good idea but currently i don't think we are seeing that threat looming so closely so i think that is an extreme case but maybe you can have a a bit of that right mm-hmm. you can think about how do you protect your family and how do you um have the resources to rebuild afterwards. Yeah. You mentioned as well, I think in your email that you wanted to talk about um, like how disa- like how disasters affect people differently depending on like, um, I guess, you know, where they're living or like, yeah, socioeconomic status. Uh, do you want to talk about that still? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Great. I'll um, ask a question. So you mentioned before, you know, how in Turkey, um, because of the the building codes, um, you know, most of the city was, um, you know, decimated. It was, um, but, you know, compare it to somewhere like, you know, Japan, where I was there during an earthquake. It, I barely felt it. Um, and I feel like Japan is very built up for earthquakes. So like, 
I'm, I'm assuming something like an earthquake or, you know, other disasters like flooding would be affected depending on uh, the people would be affected by, you know, how the buildings are created. So I'm assuming then that, you know, some people are affected more by disasters than other people. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I think that to some extent is what I was thinking uh, also when we were preparing for the podcast. We mm -hmm. were talking about how the man, uh, household can prepare for it. Mm -hmm. But I was also talking about, yeah, we, we need to have a, a broader discussion as well as about the collective, right? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, like the whole idea that having a community is essential to recover. Um, so, and that's probably one of the big issues I have with the doomsday preppers is that it's usually very individualistic, right? The idea I think is we as a society should be thinking together about how everyone is going through a disaster, right? Um, we've seen during the pandemic, if you had a good job that you had stability, and you had a good salary and you had savings and you lived in a comfortable large house, actually being in a lockdown doesn't affect you as much. But if you are living in an overcrowded house, if you are an immigrant who doesn't have a stable job, if you are a student or a young person who has the needs to be with kids, Right. And, and to have that social as part of your growing process, as part of your development, you were much more affected. So you could think about how the pandemic affected differently someone with a large house, who is a homeowner, who has a stability, and someone who is an immigrant and have a stable, uh, a non stable job or insecurity in terms of income, in terms of housing condition. So, I think that's a great example of how different people are affected, but they're just talking about a pandemic that is a prolonged disaster that we had time to act throughout it. The government did actions and reevaluated the actions and had a weekly revisions, right? What about a disaster that happens? Like, well, we say that every disaster is a continuous disaster, but what about something that has a very big disruption in one moment, an earthquake. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of research, for example, on, and I've seen on my work as well in, in, in the Asia Pacific, but there's a lot of research, for example, in the aftermath of an earthquake, how women are disproportionately affected um, because you are pushed out of your home very often, right? If, if the, the house is not in a habitable condition, you need to move into a refuge, it's like, I don't know, like a school or a church, and they welcome a lot of people who lost their homes. And in these conditions, some people feel particularly vulnerable. So there are multiple cases of sexual harassment, of crime, in these conditions, in a refugee camp, in a place where people are seeking shelter. So. It is very complicated. You need to have the policy and the authorities need to have the contingency plan, even to think about how different people are differently affected, right? Um, in, I think there's a lot of research as well about 
people fleeing wars, um, particularly there was the Syria war, there was the war in Afghanistan, all those wars, particularly in some countries, um, LGBTQI plus people in a refugee camp, they don't feel comfortable because there are no spaces for them because uh, yeah, they are safe in some, in some contexts, they are only safe inside their homes. When they are removed from their homes, they're particularly vulnerable. So we need to think about as a society, how different people are affected and how we should advocate for treatment that can um, recognize these differences and that can help people based on how much they're affected. I think that's essential in discussing disasters as a collective mm. yeah. issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I didn't, I haven't thought that much about it because I think, you know, when I, I, I see these things happening, I'm just like, if it's far away from me, I'm like, oh, that's sad. If it's close to me, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I guess I still say, oh, that's sad. And I don't put much thought into it until it's me that's, it's happening to. Um, yeah. So is there anything that we can do other than advocating, you know, in these situations or is it just bringing attention to this? Is that, is that the only thing we can do? I think we can educate ourselves, right? As we were discussing, being aware of your environment. Mm -hmm. I think there is a level that is advocacy at the government level. We should request the government to do more. But I think there is also a potential for mobilization at the local scale, mm -hmm. right? It's, and we see a lot of these communities who deal with floods regularly. They organize themselves, the church group, the school group. People have created their local networks, their local safety mechanisms as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are very important in terms of how we can prepare ourselves in a, not in the individual level, not in the government level, but in the mid-scale. Mm -hmm. Knowing your neighbors very well um, and, and being able to work with them. Um, I know in, in the cases of fires and floods, I think that's a very obvious, right? Um, I'm certainly not an expert in fires, so don't quote me on anything, but there are the strategies of doing land clearing to stop fires. And one person doing it alone doesn't help, but if you can mobilize a community and everybody goes and does, well, there's a fire coming, let's clear this area so that that creates a buffer for the fire, slows it down. I think the, the research says that usually the first response is your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want it to just be in the cliche discussion, the government should do more because everybody says that we all wanted the government to do more. But I think we can have responsibility, at least in the local level, because that's what happens. In the case of a flood, a fire, uh, an earthquake, usually your neighbor is your first help. So yeah, having those bonds, which nowadays are very hard to make, it's important, right? Strong communities are resilient communities. And I guess knowing that, you know, there are people in your in your community who will be more vulnerable and keeping an eye out for them so you can provide that extra support to them um, and not just assuming that they'll be fine because you're also fine. Exactly. Yeah, I think 
I think in in Indonesia, I heard a lot of people that comfort on family, obviously. But um, and yeah, it's it's like people. The flood is coming. The weather, um, the weather bureau told us we should bulk for um, for an incoming flood. I heard on a lot of interviews, people said the first thing is I go to my elderly neighbor and sing. Do you need help moving your things upstairs before moving mine? Because mm-hmm. I know I can do it. In in the neighbor, they being aware of the solidarity as well and, and being aware of people around you and their different needs. I think that's essential. Yeah, that's building community. Mm, so important. You. Thank you for reminding me I need to talk to my neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> particularly if you live in a flood prone area or yeah, the situation is, is essential. Um, and is there anything else that, um, you know, you want to touch on before we move on to our next section? Um, I don't think anything specifically comes to my mind. Um, I think I think we can move on. Yeah, probably okay, good. Um, yeah, we are running a bit over time, so um, I think what we might do is um, we'll do the practice and habits section, and I think we'll have to skip the questions from the audience in the open mic. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're going to move on to the practice and habits section now. So um, what is a practice that you do to prepare or prevent disasters in your own life? Yeah, the, the first thing that comes to my mind really is something being an academic is when we see how bigger institutions do risk management. And universities are very good at it. Universities in Australia particularly are very risk averse. Uh, so I've learned a lot from even doing risk management for an university activity. And maybe that's a good example that we could build on when you're taking students, for example, to field work. And I think it applies directly if you're planning uh, a road trip with your family. That is a very similar situation. And maybe if you're listening to us and thinking about your next road trip, think about these steps, how a university would deal with a road trip, um, there's basically a whole risk management framework that is put in place. As we discussed before, to think about what are the chances of something happening and how big is the potential consequence. And then do we tolerate this risk or are we acting on it to reduce it? I, I think I think that's my immediate answer to how I would do it. Do you have any examples of a time when you have done this? Yes. So it's, I think it's mostly, yeah, when when you're taking students out for a road trip for field work, right? Um, and maybe thinking about your next road trip, you can think of first thing you suggested if you're, how are you going there? If you're going by car, then it's always recommended, for example, to go and take your car to be reviewed, right? Mm-hmm. To see if it is working properly. And when you're thinking about that, for example, when you ask a specialist to look at your engine and brakes, what you're talking there is about reducing the likelihood that something will go wrong, right? Because if your brakes are not working, that's probably one of the, I'm not expert on cars again, but that's probably one of the leading causes for 
road accidents by by malfunctioning the brakes or engine or something like that. So you have someone to look at it. They're in good condition. You've drastically reduced your chances of something bad happening, right? So that's risk management. On the other side, you ask someone to look at your, well, you check if your seat belts are in good condition, if your airbag is in good condition. Those are not reducing the chance that the, that the thing happens, but they're reducing the damage to you. Mm-hmm. If your airbags are working well, then you know that you're much more protected, right? So again, it's all the things we're doing are already risk management, but you can put that lens and instead of just get, having a checklist, it's like, what are the things that I can do? First, what are the threats? This road trip I'm doing, what are the hazards, right? It, it could be a car crash. It could be um, running out of petrol in the middle of nowhere as you're going very far, if you're going to Perth, from Melbourne to Perth. That is a very reasonable hazard. So I think just identifying those scenarios is a very good start. And from there, how do you reduce the chance of something happening? Reducing the chance of a car crash, for example, checking your brakes, reducing the chance of running out of petrol. Well, maybe it's just planning beforehand where all the petrol stations are, right? That That is a very important thing that you should do beforehand if you want to reduce, you identify that as a significant hazard you want to reduce the chance of that becoming a disaster, right? You want to create the barrier between hazard and disaster. Make a map of all the petrol stations beforehand. Maybe Google Maps is outdated and you're counting on it and the petrol station is closed and done, right? So I think think that those are examples. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I think that was all. Did you want to say anything else with the practice and habits section? I think you've covered most of the things here, but. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, I mean, some other examples that the university always asks us to think about that maybe could inspire people Mm -hmm. is whenever I'm taking students out, the university always has those basic questions. How are you going? If you're going by boat, that increases your chances of something going wrong a lot. If you're going by plane, actually it reduces a lot. Counterintuitively, we think that planes are more dangerous than cars. They are definitely not. You're much more likely to have a car crash than a plane crash. Uh, and then you can think, what are the potential threats at the site? Is it water nearby? There's threat of drowning. Is there animals nearby? Is there is this an area that is particularly prone to crime, right? Or criminal activity, uh, there are other people there who cannot control their behavior. So those are all strategies you could put in place to identify the hazards. Once they're identified, very basic mitigation strategies that people very often forget, as I mentioned earlier, obviously have the number of the authorities, right? Who do you call if something happens? That reduces the damage by a lot. Yeah. You can just ask for advice when it happens. Uh, having knowing where's the closest hospital, right? What is the number of the closest hospital? If you feel that, I think that that should be standard. If you live in a flood prone area and you know there's a flood coming, you should 
have those numbers. Uh, what else you could think of? What about communication at the time? So the risk management strategies, universities, if you're taking students to a remote location, they would highly encourage you or maybe even force you to take um, a satellite phone, right? Because in a remote location, you might not get phone access and all the numbers you had, they're useless. Um, You could think about, well, if it is a small thing, having a first aid kit, that reduces damages. If you have a, a little bruise, you could, with a first aid kit, you can clean it and isolate it. If you don't, and you're around in the bush with an open bruise, that could lead to something much worse later. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think all those, and we're not talking about anything super complicated, super expensive. It's basic preparedness, right? We're not talking about becoming a doomsday prepper from today to tomorrow, but knowing your risks, knowing how you can reduce the chances of something happening and knowing how you can um, reduce the damage with, yeah, these these basic strategies, I think, cover many situations. And we're talking about generic situation, but people can apply to whatever they are going through. Mm. I was also thinking, you know, if anyone in the group has medical issues, um, making sure everyone knows what to do, making sure there's enough medication. Definitely. That is certainly in the form as well of the university. You you could work on the risk management, Gabriella. Uh, <laughs> I the, think I filled in enough of those forms. I see. <laughs> um, what is, uh, well, I think in terms of a wider community thing, very often now uh, there are apps for early warning system. Early warning system is a whole other part of the literature, books and books written about this. It's a very valid strategy because if people know beforehand, they can do something about it. Um, in Australia, there's the Bureau of Meteorology app that you can look for incoming uh, weather warnings. In Singapore, for example, there's this uh, CG Secure app. Um, Singapore that's very active, it's very interesting as well. They do very active training on people before things happen. Um, sometimes I feel even a bit alarmed, but I find it fascinating how everyone in the university is trained for, in the case of a terrorist attack, and they have like, what are the steps? You're not fighting a terrorist, right? So um, they say, or oh, I hope I'm not misquoting and giving wrong advice. People should look for the official, but they say, run, hide, and tell. So first thing, run away from the threat, make sure you're not found, and then call authorities or call the university and say there's something happening. So these things, they make such a big difference of knowing what you should do beforehand. The contingency plan is probably the easiest thing that people can act on. Yeah, what else? I think insurance is a topic that we could cover. I don't want to go too much in that, but though I've I've watched you have an you have a podcast episode with someone, an expert in insurance. It's very interesting. Um, insurance basically they're not charity as well, an insurance company, but they are business, so they want to make a profit. But they are much better at you at doing risk assessments. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they assess your risks. And then they ask you to pay for that risk beforehand with a margin for their profit, obviously. 
So if you don't want to go through the pickle of getting after a situation, insurance is very good. Obviously in Australia, great recommendation. Check beforehand if your insurance covers fire and flood, particularly if you live in those areas, right? I think that's a great suggestion as well for household risk management. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for all of your suggestions. Um, I'm going to be going back to my house and saying, okay, what are the what are the um, hazards that could be in my house? Um, and also for my trip, I'm, go- I'm going on a trip soon. And, um, you know, what are the problems that I could encounter in making sure that I've got a few things that I need to know, um, number of the emergency services. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. And if our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they um, where can they find you? So, yeah, I'm usually very active in my social media. I think you can find my handle at Eric Wolf on the on Twitter. Now change the name, right? But it's still active. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I yeah, I think the my email is always open for conversation as well. Particularly if people are interested in this field, want to know more about how we deal with hazards. I think. We are really excited now working with nature-based solutions, how we can work with nature to reduce disaster risk. For example, trees that can provide us refreshment from sun, from heat waves, or wetlands that can mitigate floods. Those are the things that I've been working right now. So if anyone wants to discuss these topics, I would be delighted. Great. Thank you so much. Um, And if people, um, you know, want to uh, find those links, you can find them in the show notes. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Gabriella. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.